On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Uh, Lord Jesus, you told us to pray to you, so we do. You told us to ask for things in your name, so we are. We're asking that you would make yourself known. We want to know who you are. We want to know about the life that you lived, and we want to know how that relates to our life. And so, Lord Jesus, would you please help the scriptures to be made known to us this evening? May you enable me to do a good job teaching them clearly by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord Jesus, may we all walk away understanding that you are a God who deeply, profoundly loves us, who has sympathized with us, and who is willing to comfort us. And may we run to you. That is our prayer, and we ask it in your good name. Amen. Well, tonight, as we begin our discussion about the humanity of Jesus, how human was Jesus, I want to start by saying that the reason we are focusing on Jesus is that Jesus is the centerpiece of Christian faith. Unlike some religions, Christianity is not held together by a place, a nation, a mosque, a temple, a synagogue, a language, a culture, a race of people, or a period of history. Christianity is held together by Jesus Christ. And everything in Christianity points to and is about that man, Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. Last week we looked at the question, uh, is Jesus the only God? We answered that yes, he repeatedly says that he was, and they put him to death for that fact, and he proved it through his miracles, including his own resurrection. This week, we look at the other side of Jesus' life, and we ask, how human was Jesus? Was he really someone who lived a life like ours, or was his considerably different? And uh, the first thing I want to tell you is that Jesus was a dude, and Jesus looked like a normal dude. Right? So many of the pictures of Jesus, he's very tall, nice jaw, uh, just very rugged European features. We don't know what Jesus looks like, except for it tells us in Isaiah 53 too, that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. I don't know what he looked like. He may have looked like George Costanza. I don't know. Right? He may not have been tall. He may have been short. He may not have had long, flowing, rocker dude, drag queen Jesus hair. He may uh, have had thinning, receding hairline. I don't know. What we do know is that he was a carpenter, so he may have been in fairly decent shape. Calluses on his hands from swinging a hammer. There were no power tools in that day, so he was a manual laborer. He walked a lot, so he may have been lean and thin and rugged. But if you've seen the pictures, he tends to have very long hair with product, wears a dress, open-toed sandals, listens to a lot of Elton John, that kind of thing. And, uh, and when we're talking about Jesus' appearance, we're talking about someone who looked very much like an average, normal, blue-collar construction worker. Some think that he took a Nazarite vow which Samson did in Numbers chapter 6, which means you don't cut your hair and you never consume alcohol. Well, Jesus didn't take a Nazarite vow. He was, however, from the town of Nazareth. Some people confuse those and then assume he didn't drink and he had long hair, and neither of those things are true. He probably had short hair. So if you would have looked at Jesus, he looked very normal, right? He's a guy going to work with a lunchbox and calluses on his hands. He's in his early 30s. Uh, people have asked me today, so Jesus had a human body? Yes, he had ears and he had a nose and toes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, he really did. And I'm not trying to be sacrilegious, but he was a guy. Actually, somebody today honestly asked me, do you think Jesus went potty? Well, I hope so. So Jesus looked very normal and he also lived very normal. Luke 2.52 says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with men and God. So he grew up. He started off as a little baby, needed to be changed and fed, and then became a, you know, a toddler who knew how to walk and became a little boy who learned how to read and write. And then when he got older, his voice dropped in puberty and he grew a beard and then he became a man. And yeah, he grew physically. It says he also grew spiritually. He had to read his Bible and pray and 
go to you know religious meetings like we do, and yeah, Jesus grew physically and spiritually and insofar as his reputation was concerned. So if you would have seen him, he looked like a normal human being. And the truth is, too, the Bible talks about many aspects of his humanity. Jesus had a mom, Mary, and the Bible says in a few places that he really did love and care for his mother. Uh, He also, we are told, obeyed his parents, which may be an argument that he is, in fact, divine. Any kid who obeys his parents may, in fact, be a miracle. And that Jesus obeyed his parents. He also had two brothers, James and Jude. So kid brothers he wrestled with and such. Uh, He went to the equivalent of church services where he worshiped God. He got hungry and he ate. He got thirsty and he drank, the Bible says. He also didn't know everything. He asked a lot of questions. Hey, what happened here? And what about this? And where's this? And he asked questions. He also got stressed out on occasion. This may surprise some of you, but when there's a lot of pressure and turmoil and hardship and difficulty, the natural physiological bodily response is stress. And the Bible says on repeated occasions that Jesus was distressed, that he had stress. That's part of being a human being. It says he was astonished both at the faith of one person and the lack of faith in some others. He was happy. He had compassion. He was a man of empathy and kindness and, and mercy. He also had friends who were male and female. Right? It says that there were two sisters, uh, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus. And these are some of Jesus' best friends. He hangs out at their house a lot, eats with them. It says he loved Mary and Martha. He loved Lazarus. And what this shows is that Jesus had friendships with men that he loved, and he had friendships with women that he loved, but it wasn't him sleeping with them or taking advantage of them or dating them inappropriately. And Jesus is in that way a great example for us all, especially those of us who are unmarried and and looking at, well, how can I have a good relationship with someone of the opposite gender that isn't sexual and sinful, but is very loving and more like a brother-sister relationship? Well, Jesus had a lot of those kind of friendships. Jesus also, though he was not a parent or a father, kids loved him and he loved kids and they came to him. And apparently Jesus too was a fun guy to hang out with because he kept getting invited to parties and holidays and such. That was the big accusation against him. He's a friend of drunkards and gluttons. And every time we see him, he's, he's at a party. Well, he went to the parties, but he didn't get drunk and he didn't eat too much. And he didn't end up with a lampshade on his head on the karaoke machine singing George Michael tunes like some demon. He, um, he was able to have fun and go to parties and celebrate holidays without sinning, right? I mean, he's not the drunk guy after seven rum and cokes doing Bon Jovi covers, you know? He wasn't that guy. He was still a guy, however, that people liked to hang out with and they'd invite him over to dinner and, hey, we're having a party, let's call Jesus. And I think one of the reasons the religious folks hated him is because they never got invited to any parties because they were no fun at all. And that's the way religious people tend to be. Uh, The question then becomes, well, last week we looked at that Jesus said and proved that he was God. And that this week we're looking at that Jesus definitely was fully human. And then the question is, well, is Jesus God or is he a man? And the answer is, yep, he's the God man. That's what he is. He is God become a man. Uh, And we need to keep both of these truths together. Uh, Blaise Pascal, a philosopher, Christian philosopher in the 17th century wrote, the church has had as much difficulty in showing that Jesus Christ was man against those who denied it as in showing that he was God and the probabilities were equally great. What he's saying is this. Some people say he's God, but not man. Others say he's a man, but he's not God. And the truth is he's both and we need to maintain both vigorously. Uh, Madeline Langle, a, a great American writer, said, to be a Christian is to believe in the impossible. Jesus was God. Jesus was human. She got it right. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, you should point to the whole man, Jesus Christ, and say, that is God. The man, Jesus Christ, is God. And then uh, St. Athanasius, who was Bishop of Alexandria in the fourth century, wrote, he, meaning Jesus, became what we are, that he might make us what he is. So Jesus God, yes. Jesus man, yes. You say, why is this important to maintain? There are two basic ways to err in the identity of Jesus. One is to say he's God, but he's not really a man. The other is to say he's a good man, but he's not really God. 
Okay? And so the first is where we say Jesus is a good man, but he's not really the eternal, one true, only real God. He's just a really great guy. Uh, historically, the ancient heretics, the Ebionites and the Nestorians said this. The Jehovah's Witnesses say this. He's a great guy, but not God. Mormons say that he was a man who became God. Um, so they're denying the full divinity of Jesus as the only God. Liberal Christians, emergent Christians who follow in their steps, and also the Da Vinci Code really stressed the humanity of Jesus but denied the divinity of Jesus. The result is Jesus is a great guy. Jesus is a guru. Jesus is a spiritual teacher. Jesus is a liberator. He's a cynic sage. He's a wise man. He has miracles and powers or maybe he's a magician or, or maybe he is some extraterrestrial, but he's, he's not God. And that mistake is very tragic. And it also is common in Christian art. I don't know if you've seen the pictures of baby Jesus in Catholic and Orthodox art. He's a freak in those pictures, right? He's a little kid, but he looks just like an itty-bitty man. Have you noticed that? He looks like a man got washed in hot water and shrunk down. And he's freakish. He's like a little bobblehead, sort of. It's freakish. And... Uh, He's very serious and adult looking. If I had a kid like that, I'd sleep with one eye open. There's something wrong with that kid. <laughs> and you can tell it's Jesus because what does he always have around his head? A big halo. Now, during his life, people weren't sure that Jesus with God was God, but I'm sure if he had a big fat halo, they would have figured it out, right? Hmm, which one's the Messiah? I bet you it's the one with the big halo. <laughs> Write that down in our handy dandy notebook. We've just figured out Blue's Clues. You know, Jesus didn't walk around with the big halo as a little kid. Mm, you know, we sing a song, you know, Jesus, no crying he makes. What kind of kid doesn't cry? Every kid cries. They can't talk. They're like, I'm, there's something warm in the back. Ah, they cry. I mean, Jesus cried when he was a baby. He was fully human. The other is to say that uh, Jesus Christ was God, but he wasn't really totally, completely, fully a human being. Uh, this is taught by the ancient heretics, the Docetists, the New Age today. And also, what's interesting as well, those who would deny the full humanity of Jesus, they would sort of tell you that he really didn't live a life like ours. I got my first experience of this from a fundamentalist pastor um, who was Protestant Christian. I was a new Christian. I was going to one church, but I took a class at another church because I wanted to learn. And the fundamentalist pastor had a position that was common to a lot of fundamentalists, meaning they believe Jesus is God, but they really are curious or diminish or even dismiss the fact that he was really a human being and that he suffered and was tempted and those kinds of things. So I, I asked him because I was curious. As a new Christian, I said, uh, Pastor, explain to me how Jesus was tempted. I don't get it. Because in Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4, Matthew 4, Luke 4, it says Jesus was tempted. Here's what he said. He wasn't really tempted. I was like, well, it says he was tempted, and that's a weird way to say he wasn't. Right? Like if I said, take a left, and you say, I meant right. You were supposed to interpret it that way. You'd be like, well, that's not the best way to say it. To say he was tempted, and what that means he wasn't tempted... That's a very confusing way to say it. What do you mean he wasn't tempted? And he said, well, you believe Jesus is God, right? I said, yeah, I believe he was God. Then he couldn't have been tempted because only people are tempted. And he took me to James chapter 113 where it says, God cannot be tempted. And he said, there you go. Jesus is God. He can't be tempted. I said, how do you explain all the temptations and the sufferings and the crying and the hardship and the difficulties? And he said, basically, he was faking it. I said he was faking it? Jesus was a faker? That doesn't help at all. <laughs> Walking on water, healing people, saying he's God, rising from death. Where do we stop with the faking it? Like this, this is worrisome. If we say Jesus is a faker, now we've got all kinds of trouble. I said I don't think Jesus was a faker. But his point was that Jesus was basically like Superman. Let me explain this to you. If you were to see Superman, he looked like Clark Kent, the mild-mannered reporter, right? 
and bullets come flying at him and villains come chasing him and hardship befalls him and buildings fall on him and he gets hit by a car and you're like, oh no. But then you remember, he's not really Clark Kent. He's da, 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 Superman. He's got a big red S on his chest and just the bullets fly off and the, the cars bounce off him and the building collapses on his head and doesn't even mess up his hair. He's Superman. And the picture was taught by this fundamentalist pastor and many who share his view that Jesus appeared like a humble, marginalized Galilean peasant who was suffering and bleeding and dying and tempted and broke, but not really because underneath the peasant garb was Superman. And, and I'll tell you what, if that's true, Jesus is a faker. And, and if that's true and you believe that, if you want to live like Jesus, you'll be a fake. People will come to you and say, how are you doing? You'll say, I am great. I am doing fine. I'm more than a conqueror of Christ. But it seems like you're sick or your loved one died or you're flat broke or it's not going so good. Yes, but you have not seen the big red ass on my chest. Saved. You know, and, and, <laughs> and those kind of people, I just want to punch them in the throat because they're fakers. And I feel like saying, it's okay to cry and say life stinks and I'm having a hard time and I'm really tempted and I feel weak and vulnerable because Jesus really was tempted. Jesus really did have some bummer days and some hard times and he wasn't just faking it. So Jesus gives us permission to be human and not fake it like we're superheroes. 1 Timothy 2.5 says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. To mediate between us and God and to reconcile us to God, Jesus needed to be fully God and fully man. If he's not fully God, he can't connect us to God. And if he's not fully man, he can't represent mankind. And so Jesus was and is fully God, fully man. Now this was debated. Christians believed it, but there were lots of false teachers throughout history that were rising up saying, no, he was just a man, or no, he was just God, not saying he is the God-man. And so a lot of pastors, theologians, Bible teachers got together at what is known as the Council of Chalcedon. This was in 451 AD, and they were wrestling with the question of the, the nature of Jesus, or the natures of Jesus. And they decided after long, intense, accurate biblical study that Jesus Christ, it is said in the Chalcedonian Creed, is one person with two natures. See, we just have one nature, human nature. We're a person, we're not God. Jesus was one person with two natures, fully God, fully man. Divine and human nature in the one person, Jesus. He possessed both. And we... Chalcedonian Creed, and, and we believe that is clearly the biblical teaching. They came up, they, they used the word rather uh, hypostatic union. You're going to get some big words tonight. Uh, hypostatic union, to, which is the, uh, the Greek word for person, saying that in this one person, Jesus, there is the, the dual natures of God and man. And the theological nomenclature that we use to explain this is called the incarnation, where the invisible, immaterial, eternal God enters into human history, humbles himself, takes upon himself human flesh, becomes a man. And that word incarnation is derived from the Latin word, which means in the flesh, that the, the spirit, eternal, second member of the Trinity, became the man, Jesus Christ, in human flesh. This is exactly what is said, for example, in uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, that the word, that is Jesus, became flesh. It's exactly what incarnation means. First John 4, 2, I think it is, John says, only Christians, right, accept that Jesus Christ is God who came into human history as a human being with flesh and blood and bone as a real person to live on this earth. Now, this is the position of Orthodox and Catholic and Protestant Christians. Some people say Christians don't agree. Actually, on the issues of Jesus, we do. And on this issue, all Christians agree. Doesn't mean if you're Protestant like us or a Catholic brother or sister or an Orthodox brother or sister, all Christians, whatever their tradition, 
believe these same truths about Jesus. One person, two natures, and we accept that there is mystery in that. The question then becomes, how could this happen? How could God become a human being? How could God enter into human history as a person to live a life shockingly like ours? One of the key texts in the Bible that explains how this transpired is Philippians chapter 2. And there, in verses 5 through 11, it explains how Jesus uh, is God become a human being. It says it this way in Philippians 2, 5. Should be in your notes. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature what? God. So who's Jesus? God. Okay, he's very clear about that. He's not ambiguous. Though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't say, I must remain in heaven and be worshipped by the angels and I refuse to go on a mission to earth to save sinners. But rather he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Right, That God got off his throne, came into human history as a servant or as a slave to serve us. We're seeing Jesus here in humility, stooping down to be with us because he loves us. Being made in human likeness, becoming a human being, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. So when you see Jesus on the earth, you see him not in his glorious state of exaltation, but in his humble state of incarnation. That's what he's saying. Jesus is really humble. He's the suffering servant promised in the second half of Isaiah. He came into human history to humbly serve you and me, though he is God. Therefore, oh, he says, uh, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself and Jesus served us through dying for our sins on the cross. He goes on to say, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus. That's why we talk about Jesus so much. It's all about Jesus. I was listening to the radio recently. It broke my heart. Even some good pastors and Christian Bible teachers, I was listening to their sermons and I listened actually for quite some time, many teachers, and I never once heard the name of Jesus. I thought that is a sad thing because it's all about Jesus and we're supposed to talk about Jesus and sing to Jesus and trust in Jesus and live like Jesus and, and be like Jesus. He says that, the goal is that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's worship of Jesus. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord or God to the glory of God the Father. What he's saying is this, Jesus Christ is God. And he didn't have to do this, but in humility and love, he came into human history to identify with us and to serve us and to suffer and to die on the cross and to rise to take away our sins because Jesus Christ loves us. Jesus Christ is humble and Jesus Christ serves. That's what he says. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Now, what this does not mean is that when Jesus became a human being, that he ceased to be God. It doesn't mean that that Jesus was, even during his life on the earth, still God. In fact, the title that was given him in Matthew chapter 1 is Emmanuel, which means what? God is with us. So even when Jesus was with us on the earth, he remained fully, continually God. And some of you say, but he doesn't show the attributes of God. God is all present and Jesus is in a place. God is unchanging, immutable, and Jesus grew that God is all-knowing, and Jesus asked questions, right? How could that be? Well, Philippians says that Jesus Christ maintained all of his attributes as God. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and unchanging. But he set those aside, and he lived a human life to identify with us. That was his humility. This does not mean that he does not possess those attributes. It just means that occasionally he used them. But for the most part, Jesus lived a life just like we live our life. He needed to learn. He needed to work his job. He needed to pray. He needed to read his Bible. He needed to worship. He needed to 
work on his relationships. He had the same kind of things to do in his life that we have to do in ours to walk in holiness. And again, this does not mean that Jesus ceased to be God. Augustine says it this way, uh, Christ added to himself which, that which he was not and did not lose what he was. So Jesus remained God, Augustine the great church father said, and he didn't lose his divinity, but he laid alongside of that the additional aspect of his humanity. This doesn't mean that Jesus' identity changed, but that his role changed. He didn't cease to be God, but he became a humble servant who identified with us. Let me use an imperfect analogy to explain this. Imperfect and flawed, I confess. But I, uh, I'm a dad, and in a little way, I'm Lord of the Driscoll home. Okay, well, just bear with me on that point. And, uh, and, and, and in my little kingdom, I have... Uh, I have five children. I have two daughters that I love. They're very girly. We go shoe shopping and out to tea. And, and on the Marianne ginger scale, they're leaning more ginger. They're, they're very sort of high maintenance little girls who like shoes and tea and flowers. And I love that because they're girly and I dig them. So we have lots of fun, um, but they don't want to wrestle, pee in the yard, eat meat, or make everything into a gun. Um, <laughs> their brothers, however, do right? They have three brothers. The oldest is Zachariah Blaze, who's about seven, Calvin Martin, who's almost five, and Gideon Joseph, who's eight months. And those boys love to pee in the yard, eat meat, and turn everything into a weapon. So even a gun becomes a gun dog. You know what I'm talking about? Or a a hot dog becomes a gun. And so the way it works is when I get home, the first thing my boys want to do is have an ultimate fight because we watch a lot of ultimate fighting at the Driscoll house. And that's how it goes. So when I get in the house, they are usually oftentimes awaiting, shirts off at the door, it's three on one, and they're ready to go, okay? And the eight-month-old is pulling himself across the floor, (laughs) ready to go. And he will look at me and snort, because he can't talk yet. So that's his, I'm going to whoop you like a man look. And they want to wrestle with their dad. It's go time. So what happens is um, I get down on the ground. I humble myself to serve them. I stoop down to their level and I let them practice all their moves. So my son who's almost five is working on his triangle choke. And my seven-year-old is working on his arm bar. And the eight-month-old can't do much. So he crawls up on me and beats on me. (laughs) Right? And they're trying to conquer their dad. And this is fun. We're playing, having fun. It's a great time. Now, Uh, sometimes I will let them win, right? And uh, they feel very good. I I tap dad out. I mean, they'll run and tell their mom that they tap dad out with a triangle choke or something. And uh, the truth is that in those moments that I let them win, I do not cease to be the father, right? Like they don't get to sit at the head of the table and eat the big piece of chicken. I'm still dad, right? (laughs) And I have all the rights as dad, like the nice seat at the table and the big piece of chicken and the remote control and such, you know, I, I, I'm still the head of the household. Uh, but what this also doesn't mean is that I don't have available to me all of my attributes. I still have all my strength and power and terrorizing might and lightning quick speed, for example. <laughs> I just choose not to use that on the eight-month-old because <laughs> I don't want to see CPS. And I don't want to kill my kid. So I'll even wrestle with an eight-month-old at the eight-month-old strength level. All of that to say, uh, I'm stooping down. I'm humbling. I'm serving. I'm identifying with my boys. I'm breaking it down to their level. I want to be with them. And Jesus, Philippians 2 says, that he did the same thing. He humbled himself. He came down. I mean, he could have just blown us all away. And instead, he was humble. He was serving. He was gracious. And he really did live a human life like ours. And let me state this clearly. I am not saying that Jesus is a man who became God. Some religions will tell you that we can become gods. And that is the first lie from the book of Genesis. Satan came to our first parents and said, you don't need God, you can be your own God. No, Mormons actually teach that. So do various aspects of the new age. We don't believe that. We don't believe that human beings become God. We don't believe that Jesus was a mere man who became God or one of the gods. We instead believe exactly the opposite, that there is one God and he became 
a man. That's what we're saying. Now, this leads to all the questions. How human was Jesus? Was he really a man? How human was he? And what kind of man was he? I'll tell you some aspects of Jesus you may not have known. The first is that he was funny. Okay? Now, some of you have never heard this. You've been in the wrong church. You've been told that Jesus was not funny. He was very religious and serious. And I think that's funny. Uh, Jesus had a sense of humor. Now, not all people see this. G.K. Chesterton, for example, a good author with a book called Orthodoxy, the last line of the book, he says, the one thing that Jesus hid from us was his mirth, meaning his sense of humor. Frederick Nietzsche thought the same thing. He's the great atheist philosopher said, it's too bad Jesus didn't learn how to laugh. One of the reasons he rejected Jesus is he thought Jesus was boring. Some of you may have rejected Jesus thinking that he's dull. And to die and go to heaven is like dying and going to the eternal dentist. You're like, no, thank you. I will go to hell. I think the rockers are going there anyways, and there'll be a mosh pit. So I will go to hell, and there'll be beer, and it will be fun. Uh, That is generally the impression. Heaven is for all the bored people, and hell is where all the action is, because Jesus is the dullard of dullards, right? That is sort of the false impression of Jesus. Now, uh, let me say this. Do you really think that Jesus went camping with 12 guys for three years and never told a joke or never laughed at one? Any of you guys ever been camping with other guys? That's basically what they did. How do you hang out with 12 guys, mainly blue collar, for three years and not tell a joke or laugh at one? Can you imagine one of the guys telling a joke and Jesus would be like, you knock it off. We're religious men. This is serious business, and I will not tolerate shenanigans. (laughs) I can't imagine the guys hanging out with a guy like that. And that guy never gets invited to parties, right? Not like Jesus did. Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time to laugh. I believe Jesus had a perfect sense of humor and perfect comedic timing. And religious people sometimes just don't get this. They see him as super duper serious. Uh, This hit me when I was going through the book of Genesis about a year ago. I was sitting down with Zach and Calvin, my two boys, and I was going through Genesis. And I told him the story where Jesus came down from heaven in the Old Testament and he wrestled with the old man Jacob, right? And the boys thought this was funny that Jesus is whooping up on an old man. I had never thought of it that way. It is kind of funny. Here's an old guy with a walker and Jesus comes down... Boom! You know, just flies out of heaven and it's like he's off the top turnbuckle going to open a can on an old man in a walker. Right? Lighten up a little bit. You know, maybe come to the Bible and say, there is a little bit of comedy in here because there are parts of the Bible, especially in the ministry of Jesus, that if you don't understand it's comedy, it makes no sense at all. I'll give you a couple examples. Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to thread through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. And all the religious types with the furrowed brows and the big books and no sense of humor who have never seen Chris Rock or Carlos Mencia, they're all sitting there going, hmm, how do you get a camel through the eye of a needle? <laughs> you don't. <laughs> That's a Hebrew funny. That's funny right there. <laughs> right? You also don't get an escalate in your pocket. Right? I mean, that's the point. It's a funny. The whole plank speck. Hmm, how do you get a two by four in your head? Well, unless you had an industrial accident, you don't. That's a joke, right? And Jesus tells some jokes, right? I mean, he calls Peter the what? The rock. Is Peter the rock? Peter goes out and denies Jesus to a teenage girl. That's not a rock. That's a wimp. It's a joke. We were supposed to laugh, not get a pulp out of it. I mean, they totally missed the punchline. Right? We're not supposed to have a papacy. We're supposed to have a chuckle. You know, and you miss the jokes, and sometimes you get too serious. And we, some of us have this sort of Spock Jesus, this very logical one eyebrow. You know, Just the comedy goes right by him. He's that kid, right? Jesus also makes fun of people, religious people. I love this. He, uh, he makes fun of some guys for tithing out of their spice rack. 
Oh yeah, you guys gave me 10% of the mint and you're jerks. I got enough mint, I'd like to have less jerks, right? He looks at the Pharisees and he calls them a bag of snakes, right? which they didn't think was funny. Everybody else did because nobody ever made fun of the Pharisees. They were the religious ones of the day. Very serious. They were the fundamentalists with no fun. Also too, uh, he tells them, and this is why they really got mad. They said, our father's Abraham. He said, no, Abraham's not your dad. Your mom shagged the devil. <laughs> that's funny, unless you're that guy. Then that's not funny at all. And so here's what I learned from Jesus. What do you do? A serious, devout, one-eyebrowed, furrowed brow, very intense, literal, no comedy, religious people. Make fun of them. Jesus did. That's biblical. Jesus had a sense of humor. He's not Spock. Secondly, Jesus was passionate. I was told Jesus is always patient, always nice, always tolerant, always kind, never gets mean, never says an unkind word, never hurts anybody's feelings, never got too angry, never got too sad. He's the lobotomized Lord. And I thought, what a weird Jesus that is. I bet you'd never slide into second base to break up a double play. I bet you'd never pitch inside to a kid who was crouching the the plate. I bet you'd never get frustrated or happy or cry or sing or nothing. He just seemed dull. I mean, he they had his meds all figured out. This kid was just right flat line of emotion. And so I walked away from Jesus, refused to go to church, wouldn't have anything to do with church for very many years. Ah, Jesus is a dull, bore, passionless. I want to go live my life, pitch inside, slide into second, meet a cute girl, fall in love. Jesus has no passion. He doesn't appeal to me. And then I started reading the Bible. And I didn't see the Jesus of the Thomas Kincaid paintings or the Jesus meek and mild of the Wesley hymn. I saw a guy who kind of shocked me, to be honest with you. If you want to spin your head around, just grab the gospel of Mark this week and read it. I'll take you through it quickly. You'll see some things about the passion of Jesus, the, the, the full, vibrant, emotional life of Jesus that may shock you. He starts off in chapter one saying, repent. See those guys on campus or at the mall with a big sandwich boards yelling at people? Jesus was one of those guys. Repent. And then he moves on and he tells these other guys, quit your jobs and follow me. And he tells a demon, shut up. And he heals a leper and says, you shut up too. Hmm, chapter one. That's an interesting way to start right there. Chapter two, Jesus picks a fight with Sunday school teachers. He does. He picks a fight with them and he goes in and eats the holy bread. It would be the equivalent to you come here on Sunday morning to go cut up the communion bread because you're helping out and you find Jesus in there and he's turned it all into sandwiches and he's eating it. You're like, what are you doing? And then he quotes from David. David did it. I could do it. It's a sandwich. You know? <laughs> Chapter three, he's angry and grieved. Some of you say, well, you can't be angry. Yeah, you can. You can be angry in a good way like Jesus. And he also ignores his mom. His mom comes to him and they say, Jesus, your mom is here. He says, you know what? I'm busy right now. Additionally, chapter four, Jesus goes out and he rebukes the wind. I'm sure the pantheists were freaking out. Nature is God. You can't curse the wind. That's sacred. No. Chapter five. He kills 2,000 pigs. Can you imagine the animal rights activists? <laughs> Jesus killed the pigs. Oh, no. I mean, you could see like, instead of like rainbows on the back of cars, you could see like bacon <laughs> bumper stickers. Like, you know, Jesus killed 2,000 pigs. Hope he turned them into bacon. Anyways, uh, he then moves on. In chapter six, he offends people, but doesn't go to sensitivity training. In chapter seven, he says, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites, goes on a rant. Chapter eight, I love. He spits on a handicapped guy and calls Peter Satan. <laughs> That's different right there. That's different. That's different than the Jesus I was expecting. Chapter nine, he asked this great question. He asked, how long do I have to put up with you? Some of you are going, I'm married. I've heard that. <laughs> it's biblical. They're just quoting scripture. Um, how long do I have to put up with you? Uh, chapter 10, he tells a rich guy, you want to go to heaven? You got to sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. Prosperity preachers freaked out, I'm sure, about that. 
chapter 11, there's a funny one. He tells his guys, go into town and get that guy's donkey. Guy comes out, what are you doing taking my donkey? Like Jesus needs it. You think about this. Tonight after service, you go out to your car. There's 12 guys in sandals, <laughs> big beards around your car with a Slim Jim, right? <laughs> or, a co- or a coat hanger. <laughs> You're like, what are you doing? They said, uh, the Lord Jesus needs it. You'll be taking the bus home. <laughs> Okie dokie. It's not stealing. He owns everything. You know, I got it. Okay. And then he kills a tree. Can you imagine the environmentalists on this one? The protest? Jesus is a tree murderer. He killed a fig tree. And then he goes in and he uh, goes to the temple and the small business leaders are corrupt. And so he throws over their cash registers and he whips small business leaders. You ever felt like doing that? You ever just felt like somebody needs to whip this guy? You ever, you ever had that kind of customer service where you're like, boy, I wish I was Jesus. I'd whip me some people right now. <laughs> he whipped some small business leaders. And then in chapter 12, he said, you guys are wrong and you guys are going to hell. Very intolerant, not very diverse. Chapter 13, very interesting. He says, I will destroy the temple. It put the whole nation of Israel a heightened security alert. You had to take off your sandals before you boarded a camel. It was nuts. <laughs> and after running his guys around for three years, casting out demons, doing miracles, preaching, teaching, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. It's late at night. His guys are tired. They take a little nap, and he comes and rebukes them for sleeping. What's my point? My point is this. Sometimes we can become so familiar with the Jesus of the Thomas Kincaid paintings and the Jesus meek and mild of the Wesley hymns and the Jesus with the perfectly feathered hair that sometimes we cease to be astonished by the guy who's actually in our Bible and say, my goodness, he lived a full human life with the full range of emotions. I don't need to fake it. I don't need to always say that, you know, to be angry is bad or to be disappointed is bad or to be frustrated or stressed is bad. All of those can be done in a way that is perfect and without sin, and that is exemplified by Jesus, including sorrow, hardship, grief, mourning, loss, pain, and bummer days. Christians were like, I don't want to say that I'm hurting or struggling because that'll make Jesus look bad. No, it won't. Jesus had some very hard days. Isaiah 53, 3 prophesied six, 700 years before his birth that he would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows familiar with suffering. Did Jesus really suffer? Was he Superman faking it or did he really suffer? He did. How did he suffer? Financially, he suffered. Jesus was what? Poor. 2 Corinthians 8 9. I think it is. He was poor. He was homeless. He was flat broke. Not only that, his buddy Judas ripped him off. Not only that, he couldn't even pay his taxes. They came to him. They said, Jesus, it's tax time. He's like, I got nothing. He didn't even have anything to pawn at the pawn shop. So he says, go fishing. You'll find a coin and a fish. That's broke. Right? When you go fishing, hoping to find a credit card and a fish, you're officially broke and desperate, right? Jesus had financial troubles. Well, you say, yeah, but, but people really loved him and respect him. Not everybody. Some people made horrible rumors. Others spit on him. Others accused him of things. He got drugged into court on false charges. And you know what? Jesus Christ was physically abused. It says that a mob of men surrounded him and punched him, beat him up, pulled out his beard, right? That he was flogged and the flesh was removed off his back and his legs. I mean, Jesus was physically abused. You had lies told about you. You ever been physically abused? You ever had anybody rip you off? You ever been flat broke and unable to pay your bills? Jesus, Jesus Christ, God, who became a man, fully relates because he too has been there. Some of you say, yeah, but at least he had religious people around him and I'm sure they prayed for him and loved him. No, they kept jacking with him. They'd come to argue and debate and try to make fun of them and sport of them and trick them and make them into a public spectacle. The religious people were generally some of the worst. You say, well, at least he had his friends. Oh yeah, his friends were ducky. They turn their back on him. They deny him. 
Peter in one moment says, you are the Christ, and then tells him what to do. Peter denies him. Judas betrays him. Thomas doubts him. These are not good friends. They all walk away. Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood on his way to the cross. His friends don't even stay up to pray for him or comfort him. I don't know about you. Maybe you've leaned on your friends and they have totally failed. They have not been there when you needed them. They betrayed you. They disowned you. They misunderstood you. They didn't support you. They ignored you. That happened to Jesus. You say, well, at least he had his family. Well, his family was no help at all. There's one scene in the Gospels where Jesus' mother and two brothers go to pick him up for what reason? They think he's lost his mind. They say Jesus has lost it. He's gone bipolar. He thinks he's Jesus. You'll get that on the way home too. And what's amazing, they want to check him into a psych ward, get him an evaluation, get him treatment, get him medication. That would be the equivalent today. Jesus' mother who was conceived by the miracle of the Holy Spirit said, my son, he's lost it. His brothers didn't believe in him. You ever had family members who didn't support you, didn't stand with you, didn't believe in you, didn't encourage you? Jesus did. You say, yeah, but at least Jesus had God the Father. And he could pray to God the Father, and God the Father would answer his prayer. Not always. Garden of Gethsemane, the cross impending, Jesus is sweating blood. He says, Father, if there is any way to save our people without me being crucified, separated from you, bleeding and dying, let's do that. Take this cup, this cup of suffering from me. And then he says, but Father, not my will, your will be done. He ultimately submits himself to the Father. So in a very real sense, that prayer of Jesus was not answered entirely as Jesus asked. In one sense it was, the Father's will was done, but in one sense, the cup of suffering passing him by, that was not answered. Some of you may be here tonight saying, you know what, I'm broke, I'm suffering, I'm hurting, my family is not good, my friends are not helpful, my life is painful. What does Jesus have for me? I'll tell you, it goes further than that. Jesus also bled and Jesus also died. I mean, this is unbelievable. I don't know about you. Lately, I, I feel weak, not strong. I feel sort of burned out, not fired up. I don't want to die. I'm not suicidal. But there are days when I really want to go to heaven. You ever had one of those days? I don't want to hear about any more people that were molested. I don't want to hear about any more women that were battered. I don't want to hear about any more men that are addicted. I don't want to make any more hospital visits. I don't want to preach at any more funerals. I don't want to hold any more people who are crying because they've sinned or been sinned against. I don't want to see any more people cripple or blind or lame. I want to see the world the way it was supposed to be before we messed it up with sin. I want to go be with Jesus. I want to see the blind see. I want to see the lame walk. I want to see the deaf hear. I want Jesus to wipe all the tears from everybody's eyes. I want Jesus to make all things new. Boy, that's what I want to see. You know, this last week, I'll tell you a painful story. There's a young man in this church named Dustin Troy. And he, like so many of you, was a young man that loved Jesus, wanted to get married, make babies, serve Jesus. Right, that was his goal. And he had a little problem, rash type thing. Didn't think it was a big deal. Doctor didn't think it was a big deal. Went on for another examination. Come to find it's leukemia, cancer. For months he's battling cancer, fighting. He's got a girl he loves with all his heart. He just wants to be married. He wants to live happily ever after. Like Jesus, he's young, he's strong, he's vibrant. His whole life is before him. 
He's been fighting for months. It's a beautiful love story. He and his wife, they actually got married in the hospital. Okay? He's been struggling. Pastor Paul has spent a lot of time. His family and his friends have devoted a lot of time. His loyal, faithful wife who married him in the hospital. It's a beautiful story. Exceedingly faithful to him. Heard that he wasn't doing well. So this last Wednesday night, Pastor Leaf and I went there just to speak to him and pray for him. I walked in and there he is, young and strong, but he's on a ventilator and he's on medication and feeding tubes and he's really swollen and, and he's in a very bad condition. I walked in and there's his mom and there's his wife and there's his friends and everybody who loves him and they're all weeping and they're praying for him. And I swear to you, I heard Jesus speak to me and he said, I've been there. I just lost it. I thought, I cannot believe that God would come to this world. All I want to do is get out. I can't believe that God would let people treat him the way we treated him. I can't believe that God would let his family and friends disrespect him the way they disrespected him. I can't believe God would let his enemies beat his body and take his life. And I can't believe that one of his final words would be, Father, forgive them. I mean, Jesus Christ is unlike anyone else. There is no religion that is like Christianity because there is no person who is like Jesus. Everything that we want to avoid is what Jesus chose for himself. Why? Why would he do that? I'll end with Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. You could pray for Dustin's wife. Dustin passed away. We have to do a funeral for Dustin. The only comfort I have is that Jesus Christ has suffered, died, rose, and that Dustin knew Jesus, and Jesus knew Dustin, and that Jesus was able to be with him and understand and sympathize and take his hand and make all things new. Okay? God is not a God that stands back and says, try harder, do better, good luck. I'm not getting into that mess. You've made it, you fix it. Our God is completely other. That's what it means to be holy. Our God comes into human history and gets his hands bloody and suffers and dies and lives a full human life with a full range of human emotions. And Jesus does that because he desperately loves us. And because of that, Jesus Christ is the one when we are struggling, when we are hurting, when we are failing, when we are dying. He is the only one who can help us because no other religion offers any other God who has ever been there and gone through to the other side. Hebrews 4 says it this way, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, and Jesus is great, who has gone through the heavens, he is now on the other side of the cross and empty tomb. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. I know that some of you are here today, and you are Christians. You were raised in a Christian home, or at one point perhaps you made a commitment to Jesus, and your faith is falling out of your hands. It's hard to hold on to the faith that you once professed. You're tempted to sin. Your life is hard. You're flat broke. You're in constant pain. Someone you love has died. Life has become arduous, difficult, harsh, painful. Your family, your friends, even the religious people that you came with aren't as much help as they should be. And it doesn't seem like God is answering your prayers either. And the faith that you once professed is slipping through your fingers. You say, how can that be prevented? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Do you feel weak today? Not strong like a victorious conqueror. Weak. Like you're burned out and you're busted and you're tired and you're frustrated and you're sick of it and you don't want to commit suicide, but you sure look forward to heaven. Jesus can sympathize with us in our weakness. You know, Jesus has been tired, hungry. He wept. 
He suffered. He had pain. He bled. He died. He buried people that he loved. In moments of weakness, sometimes we feel like we should run from Jesus because he'll be disappointed. No, we should run to Jesus because he can sympathize. Isn't that wonderful? That when you need Jesus most, you don't get disappointment, you get sympathy. He goes on to say, but we have one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never did sin, but he really was tempted. You say, yeah, but he wasn't tempted like me. He was tempted in every way as we are. You want to eat too much and be a glutton. You want to drink too much and be a drunkard. You want to take something that's not yours and be a thief. You want to convolute the truth and be a liar. You want to be a self-righteous, religious, pharisaical hypocrite who is judgmental of all people and kind to very few other than the few that are like you. If you're filled with pride and arrogance, which is the original sin, and got Satan kicked out of heaven, if you're tempted to these sorts of things, including sexual sin, some of you say, now Mark, Jesus wasn't sexually tempted. Well, of course he was. 30-something-year-old single man who had women who adored him. You don't think he ever wanted the comfort of a woman? You don't think he ever got tired of going to bed by himself? You don't think that he didn't once want to have intimate relations with a woman? He was tempted. And you need to distinguish between temptation and sin. They're two totally different things. If you don't get this distinction, Satan will absolutely destroy your conscience. Temptation is where we are presented with an opportunity to sin. Sin is when we act on it. Jesus was tempted, but he didn't sin. Opportunity came, but he didn't avail himself to it. You and I will constantly be tempted. Some of you say, how can I no longer be tempted? As long as you are on this earth, you will be tempted. The answer is, you must resist temptation and sin. You must say no to sin and yes to God. And that's what Jesus did every time in thought, word, and deed. He can sympathize with us in our weakness. And he can empathize with us in our temptation. He absolutely gets it. You say, well, how can I live this life with Jesus? Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is back on his throne, and that in one hand he has grace, and the other hand he has mercy. And what he says is this, Come to me, all you are heavy and burdened, and I'll give you mercy, and I'll give you grace, and that will be your rest. So many of you are trying so hard to impress Jesus. What you need is to run to him for mercy, to forgive you, sympathize with you in your weakness, empathize with you in your temptation. That doesn't excuse your sin, but it means that he will also give grace that will forgive you of your sin and will empower and enable you to say no to sin and yes to him so that you can live the life of Jesus the life that does suffer, the life that is passionate, the life that does believe there is a time to laugh and there is a time to weep. The full range of humanity without being a faker, without being like Spock, without being like the self-righteous, furrowed brow, religious hypocrites who said everything was fine even when it wasn't. But being fully human as Jesus was fully human, and receiving from him grace and mercy and sympathy and empathy to live a life that says no to sin as he continually said no to sin. At this point, we invite you, I invite you to Jesus. If you're not a Christian, go to Jesus tonight and receive mercy and grace. Be saved by the mercy and grace of Jesus. He alone can give it because of his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his literal resurrection. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we should have died. He rose to give forgiveness, grace, and mercy that we didn't deserve. There is no one like Jesus. No one. If you're here and you're a Christian, you say, I'm feeling very tempted, but I don't want to run to Jesus because I'm embarrassed. No, run to Jesus because he sympathizes and he empathizes, and he gives mercy, and he gives grace. 
And when you're ready, you can take communion if you're a Christian, remembering Jesus' body and blood, through which come grace and mercy. Give of your tithes and offerings, and then raise your voices to sing and celebrate Jesus, that he may not save us from the pain of this world, but he will indeed save us through it. And so let's run to him with confidence. Let's run to him with confidence that there is grace and mercy and that it is only to be found in Jesus who alone can sympathize with the weak and empathize with the tempted. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, I pray now that you would enable my friends to respond to you, that those who are weak would run to you for grace and mercy, that those who are tempted would run to you for grace and mercy. Jesus, that those who don't know you would now know that you sympathize with their weakness and you empathize with their temptation, that you have been where they are, that you understand, that you can relate, that you will take their hand, that you will say, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, let me come alongside of you. Jesus, I am shocked that you would come into this world. None of us would have chosen that. To have friends betray, deny, abandon you. To have family dishonor, disown, and disrespect you. To have enemies beat you and curse you and mock you and kill you. Jesus, you are a man of laughter. You are a man of sorrows. You are a man of passion. You are a man of sobriety. May you redeem us and make us fully human like you. We ask for that grace and mercy, and we come to your throne confidently. Amen.